I've always loved canoeing. My friend John and I are making a habit of getting out regularly to a local river for a good paddle and some time away to relax almost once a week these days. I grew up canoeing. When I was little, my family would go on a day canoeing trip once a summer with my dad's extended family, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, brother-in-laws, even great aunts and uncles, and my grandma always led the trip. We'd get up early and head north and always stopped at the same McDonald's in Pinconning for breakfast, which was quite the treat when I was a kid. More recently, a small group of friends and I take a canoe camping trip for a few days every summer. Canoeing has become a part of me. Canoeing isn't as popular as it once was. I don't remember the last time we saw someone else canoeing on the river with us. Everyone kayaks these days. I like to think that the proliferation of kayaks is the triumph of individualism in the boating world. People like kayaking in pairs or groups, but they want to go their own way when they want and not be bound to navigate trees or waterfalls or boulders together. It's okay. I've enjoyed kayaking too. There's just something I appreciate about canoeing, nostalgic or otherwise. One of the things we encounter every trip down the river, though, is trash. Of course there's trash everywhere, but there's something that really goads me when I see bottles and other shit just floating on down the river or sunk into the bottom or trapped in a log jam. I just shake my head. If I can keep my trash in my canoe until the end of the trip, why can't you keep yours in your kayak? I feel like, you know, on the side of the highway, when there's thousands of cars every day, I get there being trash on the sides of the road. But how lazy, how irresponsible, how careless, how disrespectful, arrogant, anti-wildlife, anti-environment, and just plain ignorant do you have to be to leave your trash in a river? I mean, have they that little self-respect, that little respect for nature? I often think to myself, God, I'm glad I at least have the common sense to not do that. I might be dumb and careless, but I'm not that dumb and careless. And, of course, it's not like I've never dropped something out of my pocket and ignored it or forgot about it. But I don't leave my trash in rivers. I'm not a moron. I'm not intentionally a litterer. Hell, I've even started teaching my little kids to pick up trash when they see it because we are not litterers. The Pharisees' bad rep comes both from Jesus and popular culture. We know we don't want to be a Pharisee. Even though hypocrisy wasn't really Jesus' primary critique of the Pharisees. And he wouldn't have written off the whole lot of them. He, he wasn't really into painting entire groups of people with broad brushstrokes, coloring the whole group all the same. His thing was actually the opposite, to undo the ways we too quickly categorize others into others. One of his lesser-known parables is called the Pharisee and the tax collector. They were both, the Pharisee and the tax collector, at the temple praying. One, the Pharisee, thanked God for making him not like the other and a bunch of other others. And the other, 
beat his chest and asked God for mercy. I wonder, do you know the sensation of what mercy feels like? What it feels like to ask for mercy? To be in need of mercy? What comes just before it? What necessitates it? What happens when you have received mercy? How does it feel? How does it move? How does mercy interact with your other ideas, beliefs, opinions? Do you remember mercy being something you need? Want? Something trustworthy about mercy is that it's easier to offer it to someone else when you know what it's like to ask for it yourself. It can become habit-forming once we get the hang of recognizing our regular, if not constant, need for mercy. And no, mercy is not just for when I've been an asshole, done something stupid, mean, careless, arrogant, or even intentionally vindictive. But mercy is required in daily doses that requires just a certain amount of humility in order to recognize my need for it. We live in a culture that does not value mercy or humility. Of course, we pay lip service to these values, and there are merciful and there are humble people, and I think we all sort of appreciate them when we come across these people. And we all can be both at times, merciful and humble, but there's scant evidence that we place our trust in them, not as a culture anyways. We might personally value it, but it's difficult to choose something, to choose mercy and humility, when swimming in a cultural water that says mercy is not necessary, humility is not helpful, and neither is efficient. It seems we all too often add mercy and humility onto the garbage heap with the likes of vulnerability, patience, and peace. These things of weakness, too soft to do any real good when it matters the most, we say. Asking for mercy, though, is not an end in and of itself, as I think we sometimes believe. Mercy is actually a new starting place. In fact, once you ask for mercy, once I ask for mercy, once I know that I'm in need of mercy, it might be difficult to predict what happens next. Once we've received mercy, it's hard to know what you might feel or what I might desire, what perspectives might change, what lessens or lightens. What becomes less opaque and more transparent in the light of mercy? What different paths might present themselves? Mercy is not an end in and of itself. The classic interpretation of this parable is to demonize the Pharisee in ways that make the tax collector the good guy, the one who knows that Contempt is bad and mercy is good. But that's not how it would have been heard when Jesus or Luke first spoke or wrote this parable. When it was told originally, the Pharisee was not the bad guy. The undisputed villain in any story with a tax collector was the tax collector. 
And for whatever self-righteousness may have been an insidious attribute of Pharisees in general, they were also the ones who knew the Jewish law the best. They were charged as keepers of the law, and through that role, they were the keepers of the national and cultural identity. They served an important role in the life of the Hebrew people, and the caricature of this particular Pharisee was to intentionally turn the tables on the listeners, not the Pharisee himself. Demonizing the Pharisee, let alone anyone, undoes what the parable has to teach us by taking the responsibility and accountability off of us and placing it literally anywhere else. The demonizing or dehumanizing of the Pharisee obscures our inclinations toward our own moral superiority. We don't just need fewer overt racists. I mean, of course we do. And we need to get them out of the White House, the Cabinet, and Congress. But we also need so-called average people who are willing to recognize their own moral superiority and how it shows up in small ways almost every day. It was C.S. Lewis who noted that it isn't the Hitlers of the world that are often the largest source of evil. It's the ordinary people. He says, quote, It does not matter how small the sin, provided that their cumulative effects is to edge a person away from the light and out into the nothing, capital N. Murder is not better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, Lewis says. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And while Lewis likely meant a fiery hell in the afterlife, it is equally potent, if not more so, when we apply his logic to the hells we've created on earth in this life. Moral superiority, even in small doses, causes us to be morally stagnant and complacent under the false logic of compare and contrast morality. And that lets us off the hook because, well, we didn't lynch anyone. The term Pharisee is usually used as synonymous with hypocrite. But Jesus' focus on the Pharisees was to turn a light onto the contradictions in how they carried out and enforced the law far more often than it was on blatant hypocrisy. Jesus cared about growth and compassion and mercy, and the Pharisees' preoccupation with the law caused them to be morally stagnant, that is, morally unimaginative, morally unresponsive. Moral stagnation is any kind of moral position, superior or otherwise, that is staid, letter-focused rather than spirit-focused, liberal, conservative, or otherwise, which often precludes the inclusion of compassion and mercy for some people, but not all. Because compassion, mercy, grace, love, kindness are all active, responsive, and kinetic moral positions 
that will inevitably come in conflict with moral superiority of any kind because of its stagnant nature. Moral superiority isn't just distasteful, which it is. It not only causes harm to others, but counter to popular understanding, moral superiority actually causes harm to oneself. It's a form of moral misdirection that causes, again, moral stagnation. Where, And that's why it's so insidious and why noticing where it shows up in the small places in each of our lives matters. Am I a horrible person or a Pharisee because I felt morally superior about not leaving my trash in the river? No, I'm not a horrible person because of that. But if I don't recognize that Pharisee praying at the temple in myself, giving thanks for, giving myself credit for, not being like or doing something that someone else did, I'm not actually doing the work that is actually moral, actually good. Passing judgment has become just another, quote, thing you shouldn't do. And once something is added to the should and should not list, any understanding of the underlying value or harm is usually lost. Judgment is not only usually mean and unproductive when it comes to producing a change in yourself or someone else. It's again also a distraction, much like other common forms of self-righteousness. The question is, is not so much what you are not, or what you refrain from doing, or what someone else does. But the question is, what do you do? What moves you, compels you, transforms you, ignites passion in you to do something different than before, something for the better, for good, no matter where you find yourself in this moment? I think that's one of the reasons why George Floyd's murder has ignited this country. The video was repugnant. It not only engendered rage and simultaneously peaceful protests, but also it brought about compassion in a way that illuminated the condition of being black and police brutality in America in a way that more white people couldn't ignore and black people could not remain home or silent any longer, nor should they. Self-righteousness is not just off-putting, but as a form of moral superiority deadens the moral imagination. Self-righteousness, again, is stagnant morality, like a pool of water or pond that does not flow. It becomes diseased, uninhabitable, toxic for life and for living. Making the assumption that I have the relative moral high ground and there is no more good that needs to be found. Each time we find ourselves focusing on the other, and in particular, in some way placing ourselves in a superior light, yes, even if it's just about river garbage, we might not be doing overt harm to anyone, but we are playing our part in a system that seeks to rank everything and everyone and always has. And it's a system we are told is meant to control our well-being and meaning-making. But the ranking system is not and never was equipped for meaning-making or for our well-being, let alone anyone else's. 
it's a system equipped only for profit and for control over resources and labor, therefore people. And yet, we hardly know how to function outside of our ranking system, and no amount of education or lack thereof makes a difference because it's not an intellectual exercise or an intellectual system, it's an emotional one, and it's in everything. Most of us are unconsciously ranking everything in order of good to bad, light to dark, holy to evil, generous to corrupt, all the time, and finding ourselves somewhere comfortably in the middle, but almost always, well, slightly above average. And it's in that precise moment of subconsciously ranking things and people that experiencing another human's need for mercy, let alone our own, makes a difference and can arrest even our own most subtle cravings for moral superiority. The trouble is that the Pharisee wasn't just being self-righteous. He was protecting himself. When we focus our moral energies on others, it serves to protect ourselves from our own need to change, grow, transform, alter our intentional investment into something more substantive. And not just point out, cry out, carry our rifles onto capital steps to compare and contrast our morality to someone else's through our most recent whataboutism. The Pharisee had place, power, privilege, prestige in a way that giving thanks that he wasn't that other guy wasn't going to change any of those preferred positions. Yet, he was that other guy. He is that other guy, that tax collector. Both men praying at their temple, temple, one from his comfort and the other from his distress. The Pharisee's biggest blind spot was not his moral superiority. It was that he too was in need of mercy, just as we all are. Each of us carry with us the blind superiority complex that is part and parcel to our compare and contrast moral judgmentalism. And each of us are the tax collector, something of a scoundrel, always, always in need of mercy. You know that twinge of relief, <laughs> that, that little light that comes from the small surges of gratification when we realizing we're doing something at least a little bit better than that other person? Yeah, I'm talking about garbage and rivers again. Yeah, we all get that feeling. And that's the signal to notice that little twinge of relief, the small surges of gratification. And usually it's the smallest contrast that we rely on the most to get those little moments that tell us, well, I'm definitely not as bad as she is. To feed us those small surges of pharisaical gratitude. I mean, we don't compare ourselves to the schmucks. I mean, it's obvious that we're not them. No, it's our friends, our family, our neighbors, those people we see on TV or read about that sound something like us, that we are constantly evaluating to place ourselves in minute positions of superiority, at least for a moment. Or perhaps equally as deadening, but for the opposite reason. We find reasons to micro-shame ourselves for not doing, looking, 
saying, being, thinking, feeling, achieving, loving, learning, challenging, peacekeeping, fearing, enough, not being good enough, not enough, never enough. Not enough is the language of shame. It's also the language of our compare and contrast system. And it always carries the potential to be deadly. And it is integral to our social construct, as is moral superiority, moral inferiority. Compare and contrast morality at any degree is about moralistic misdirection. By sometimes using the smallest, most insignificant contrasts, serves to perpetuate staying the same. I might not be able to wipe away every small whisker that falls on the counter while I shave. I mean, there's hundreds of them, and they're tiny. But I sure as hell wipe down the counter more often than the long-haired members of my family clean out the shower drain. This problem, though, the problem, though, is when we really aren't talking just about rivers or hair in the sink but larger social structures that require our individual attention but are too large to dismantle on our own. Someone will always be more racist than you. I mean, likely. Someone will always be less kind. And someone will always take more liberties, tell more lies, push the limits further, spend more extravagantly, make more money while paying their employees less, break more commandments, leave more trash in rivers, clean fewer beard trimmings off the counter, and cry out for mercy less than they need. But in the end, honestly, so what? Who cares? The problem is, we do. The compare and contrast morality that has been a part of humanity for no less than 2,000 years isn't going anywhere. And the antidote to it is not to draw the arbitrary line of relative moralism somewhere a little less bad that likely only reflects the current emotional, moral, political winds of the moment. Stunningly, it's almost fashionable in this moment to write, post, say, cry out, Black Lives Matter. But that does not make me or you or any of us any more anti-racist than we were on Memorial Day. What matters now, and likely has always mattered most, is the notion articulated in the Center for Action and Contemplation's core principles. The best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. The best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. The best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. I mean, just finish wiping down the counter, pick the hair out of the drain and just shut up already. The question is not how racist are you, but how anti-racist are you? Not how much are you not the bad thing, but what are you doing? I mean, what did you, I mean, am I, going to do today to work for the good of all the people? 
it's honestly something most of us have never truly considered work to be done for the good of all the people. I mean, I think about this stuff all the time, and I would love to claim that I think about doing good for all the people until I read an email heading today from the design group IDEO that read, it is our responsibility to design for racial equity. And it hit me. For all the years that I spent as a pastor of a church, for all the programs, sermons, small groups, newsletters and articles, devotions and book studies, even gatherings with friends, I have never, never designed anything for racial equity. The culture would say, shame on me. But that doesn't do me or anyone else any good. We are so adept at moral misdirection that we take moral sayings and invert them to say something like, the better critique of the bad is the practice of the best. Notice I switched the words better and best and how it almost reverses the meaning of a really important phrase. We do the same kind of thing with the golden rule when we proudly proclaim that we treat other people the way they treat us. Not the golden rule. That's the same as the prayer of the Pharisee who's just so damn glad God didn't make him a tax collector. There is no best. There is only better. And those who are stuck on best, when I am stuck on best, I'm still seeking a dualism that elevates myself over someone else in some worthless comparison again. The easiest critique of doing one small thing different is to say that it's too small. It doesn't make enough of a difference. Making morality about cleaning the hair out of the sink or the tub is just as cliche and ineffective to get somebody to live differently than saying life is short. It's not enough. And this is all true. It's not enough. Unless, of, and we realize that hair-clogged drains have nothing to do with black men dying face down on the pavement while a white officer's knee on the, with the, back, on the back of his neck. But the notion of not enough is one of our culture's paralysis points. We are a culture of not enough, and we shame one another for it all the time. It's in the water. And particularly white people love to do it to other white people. I can't speak for black communities. So to add someone's attempt to actually do something, anything, an attempt to change the way that they think of themselves morally in terms of comparing themselves less to others... To add it to the list of not enough is to stall any forward motion that may have been coming and to sabotage whatever it was that changed the static emotional inertia of doing nothing into the kinetic emotional inertia of doing something. Most of us, all of us, will never do enough when it comes to the systems around us. But the only way to move the needle is to acknowledge the small movements and encourage them into larger ones. 
so that the small movements might actually roll into Amos's letting justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's why the tax collector's cry, ask prayer for mercy, is so crucial. Mercy, <laughs> mercy contains emotional self-propulsion. Emotional and moral self-propulsion. As long as it's not embedded with its stagnant emotional opposite of self-pity, mercy is the backwards step that propels us forward into something new, different, better. Because once you've asked for mercy, you know it's not about you anymore. Mercy is not pity, whether it's given or gained. Pity is a pressing down while mercy is a pressing open into something new. You know, there was no question about who was who and which of the two had higher status. The Pharisee was a keeper of the religious law and therefore, in part, the identity of the people. And the other, the tax collector, was a lackey for the Romans who likely scammed his people. The system left it up to him to decide how much of a scam he wanted to run. Rome didn't care how much tax collectors took from their own people, as long as Rome got theirs when they came and knocking. Maybe this call for mercy was guilt. Maybe it was confusion. Maybe it was his daughter was sick and he didn't want to have to ask his neighbor for more money because he knew he couldn't afford it either. We don't know. And that's why it doesn't make any sense to make him morally superior either. What we do know is that he started with mercy. Asked for it. He was beating his chest for it. Mercy was a start. A good start. A starting place or a starting over place that none of us are restricted or immune from. And all of us are in need of. Often. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. The Pharisee missed it. Let's not let the Pharisee in us miss it as well. May God bless you. Amen.